Okay, Matthew 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be done in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for your tr- yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp, the, uh, excuse me, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, in all his glory, clothed himself himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, 
Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Well, good morning. As we prepare to worship God through uh, looking in his word this morning, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, may the light of your word shine, and may the Spirit reveal what a great treasure we have in Jesus Christ. Please examine us and stir us to seek after him. Help us to see the indescribable treasure from our master. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We come upon today a very familiar section of scripture as we look at Matthew 16 and verses 19 through 24. Phrases like, do not lay up treasures on earth, lay up treasures in heaven. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God in money. Are very familiar, often quoted probably by believers, and I would put forward often quoted by the world in general as well, right? They're part of the lexicon of uh, what's in and around us. But does familiarity, the fact that they're very familiar, necessarily mean that they're well understood or that they're followed? Just because they're familiar does not necessarily mean those two things come along with the ride. The other thing, as I was looking to the scripture this morning, or this week in preparation for this morning, it struck me, I, I just questioned it, this is kind of an unexpected location for them in scripture. Right, we're coming right off the Lord's Prayer, right, and the teaching that Jesus has done there, and here now we come into this very familiar discussion, but you know, how many people would anchor it here in the Sermon on the Mount and say, yeah, that's, that's where that is? as we often quote it. So that begs the question, do they fit here? And of course, the obvious answer is yes, they do, right? Because God placed them here. So they're an obvious fit where they sit in the scriptures. And I think as we look more closely at them and we begin to walk down through here, what we're going to see is this is not an entirely new thought or direction that Jesus is striking off in at this point in time, right? He has been talking about through the better part of chapter 5 and chapter 6 now, and the better part of a couple months as we've been listening to his words, he's been talking about matters of the heart. First he talked about matters of the heart dealing with how we deal with other people, right? And how do we handle things like anger, covetousness, oaths, and reconciling with a brother. And again, saying not be outward about those things, but to do those things out of an inward heart of love for him and his word. From that, we transitioned into the religious practices and the observances. They also need to be done from the heart. Right? We talked about alms, about prayer, about fasting. Again, all these things availeth nothing right? if they aren't done from a heart that's right with the Lord and desiring to please him. So now as we come to 19 and on through the end of chapter 6, Jesus is now going to be speaking about how to deal with our hearts in relationship to the physical world around us. The things of the world that surround us. You know, we all live in the world. Right? And we are surrounded by the things of it. 
and we experience its pull on our lives every day. Right? The things of the world are clamoring, they're around us. There's always a pull from them on our lives. Now, God knows we need these things. Right? There are things here that we need. We need food. We need clothing. Right? We need all sorts of things that God supplies to us. The issue comes when we pursue these things or pursue after more of them than God provides or intends us to have. Right? That's where the rub is, Right? When we start pursuing those things to a greater extent, to a greater degree than God provides to us or intends to give to us. So, considering the text this morning, kind of as a working title or a working outline, I put forward, what I treasure affects my heart, what I view lights my body, and both reveal my master. So as we look at this section of scripture this morning... Let's consider what I treasure affects my heart. What I view lights my body. And both those things reveal my master. The passage actually naturally asks three questions, or would lead us to ask three questions. First question we'll look at is, what do I treasure? What's my treasure? Second is, what is my light? What is the light? And then the final one is who, or maybe in some cases, what, is my master. It should be a who, but it could be a what. So three questions we're going to go through as we go through the scriptures this morning. What do I treasure? What is my light? And who is my master? So let's look at Matthew 6, starting in chapter 19, and ask the question, where is my treasure? Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break in or steal. So what we see here is there's really two options for treasure. Things of the earth or things of heaven. And to understand the passage, let's look at a couple key terms, a couple definitions here. The first is comes to us is lay up, right? We're told to lay up or lay not up in verse 19 and told to lay up in verse 20. So lay up here is to accumulate, something we would count as best or glorious, to covet an abundance of, to trust in for future security, to not be content with only what is needed. So laying up is this idea of accumulating, of stacking up, of piling up, as it were, an abundance of an item. The second one would be treasure. Now treasure probably brings to mind for many of you, right, the pirate's buried uh, cask of gold in the sand, right? And that actually is a form or an example of treasure. But treasure has a broader definition here. It's the object that we value the most. And you think about it, the pirates valued gold, right? That's why they called it their buried treasure. And they spent their lives sailing about the earth, seeking it, right, as the stories go. So the treasure is something that we value the most. And it can be a variety of things. It can be money. It can be our home. It can be our family. It can be recognition. It could be a career. It could be the business we've founded. Our treasure could also be God. Identifying our treasure, we can do this 
by what dominates our thoughts. When you have a free minute, where does your mind go? What does it think about? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thought that crosses your mind for the day? Our treasure, as we see, will occupy our minds. So there's a contrast here. In verse 19, we're told what not to do. Lay not up treasures for yourselves upon the earth. And we find out why. The explanation is given right here in the text. Moth and rust corrupt, and thieves break through and destroy. So the treasures of the earth are temporal. They're passing. They either kind of decay from within, is one of the examples he gives here with like moth and rust, or they can be taken, forcibly taken, or spoiled from the outside. You know, you think about it, money, it can be stolen, it can be taxed, it can lose its value through inflation. Money suffers both those things. That brand new shiny car eventually rusts, right? The tires decay. Or the home needs maintenance, silver, tarnishes, right? Endless. The things of the earth have a built-in, they either decay or they can be taken. They aren't secure. And in the end, because they're temporary, it demands much of our time and attention. Since they're always decaying, since they're always changing on us, right, they start demanding a lot of our time and attention to maintain them, right, and keep them, and kind of keep them from being taken, or keep them from, you know, decaying or falling apart. And in the end, there's a lot of worry there. Right? If the focus and the treasure is there and it's always decaying and we're always going to have to maintain it and work on it and keep after it, that brings worry. Right? There's not a rest and a security that comes when we build our lives around the treasure of the earth. Fortunately, though, we're given a directive command in verse 20. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through or steal. So God's directing us where we should have, right? He doesn't want us to deny treasure. Neither of these verses say, do not have treasure. He wants us to have treasure. He wants to make sure we place it in the right place. And verse 20 tells us, laying up that treasure in heaven, because it's secure. Why is it secure? Because it's in God's keeping, right? The creator of the universe The all-knowing, all-powerful one, that treasure is under his lock and key and secure in heaven for us. We don't have to worry about it rusting away. Nobody's going to come and take it away from us. It's something we can rest and secure in. But the issue is, heavenly treasure doesn't necessarily surround us like the things of the earth. We can see those. We can see the car. We can see the bank account. We can see... You know, whatever else you want to put on the list. But you know, heavenly treasure is seen right here. Right? God reveals it to us through his word. But we need to go to the word, and we need to see that heavenly treasure. Because it can't be seen anywhere but in the sure promises that God provides us in his word. And these promises, then, are lasting they're permanent. They aren't dependent upon us. And we can have great peace and security in our lives when our treasures are placed there. 
Let's look at a couple verses together about this heavenly treasure. And I want to encourage you, we're going to look at some references this morning, and don't just say, I'll listen, okay? You know, all right, yeah, I don't want to turn, uh, I'll just listen. We retain more when we listen and see than if we just listen. So as we go to some scriptures this morning, please turn with me, because I want you to see this heavenly treasure. So first, Romans 8, 17 through 18. Romans 8, 17 through 18. So speaking to the believers here, the writer says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. That's heavenly treasure in Romans. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Also verse 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Again, one of these great compare and contrast statements like we're looking at in Matthew. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but to the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And then one final one. I mean, we could go on. There's probably a hundred of them. But let's go to 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 4 through 5. This is speaking directly of our heavenly treasure. To an inheritance uncorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. There are treasures in heaven, sure and secured by God. So back to Matthew. Why does this matter? Maybe you're asking the question, can I have a little bit of treasure over here in the earth and have some treasure over here in heaven, right? That's kind of the American way, right? We're, we're gonna, we want it all, right? <laughs> can I have it all? Well, verse 21 speaks to that. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can't have a divided heart. We can't have a divided treasure. We're seeking one treasure or the other. And we're going to see that continually as we go through these verses. That's another thing that hangs them in common is we're really only faced with two choices. And there's not a middle position to be had here. Because here it says, where our treasure is, that's where our hearts will be focused. Proverbs tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So what we're thinking in our heart, what we're meditating on in our heart, what we're valuing in our heart, comes out in the way we speak, in the way we look, where we walk, what we choose to do. And you know, hasn't that been the theme here? 
probably from chapter 5, verse 21, all the way up here to 621. Christ is really speaking here the importance of the heart attitude in all that we do. Here, it's applied to our heart and its attitudes towards the temporal treasures of the world versus the lasting treasures of God. You know, God knows we need money, we need jobs, we need food, we need shelter. And those things are not inherently evil, right? Let's not take this to the illogical extreme of saying all the things of the world are evil and we should have nothing to do with them at all. No, the scripture clearly tells us, right? Our Father knows the things that we have need of and he provides them to us because he's gracious and he's loving and he cares for us. We need a proper heart attitude, though, to realize two things about our gracious God. One, he will provide these things. And two, we need to trust him in regard to the amount of these things that he provides. Not desiring more or desiring less than he wants to give. All right. Proverbs. Let's go together to Proverbs 30. And we're going to look at verses 8 and 9 to take a look at how God does work in this area of worldly goods and the attitude we should have about them. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Actually, I'm going to back up to verse 7. The thought really starts there. Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of the Lord my God in vain. I think these verses in Proverbs speak very clearly about a proper reliance on God for provision and a contentment in what he gives. Feed me the food convenient for me. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. And help, help me to trust in what you've provided. Thank God we can trust him in these things, in our treasures. So in thinking about treasure and reflecting on the past week, where have your thoughts been this week? Where have you spent your time and your efforts? And maybe that indicates where is your treasure? And maybe an encouragement for the coming week, I know for me, and hopefully for all, heavenly treasure is right here. Right? It's right here. We just need to look. The Spirit will guide us to it, will open it to us, and will help us to understand it. Let's seek some heavenly treasure this week through his word. So after asking the question, what is treasure, let's go back to Matthew 6, verse 22 and 23, and ask, what is my light? Verse 22, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body be full of light. But if your eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. And if therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, verse 22 is very straightforward here in the compare and contrast. A healthy eye right, will seek light, 
Right? It'll allow the light to stream into our mind and our affections, right? The eye is the window that the world enters or the word enters, but everything that enters into us visually comes through our eyes. You know, Christ is the light. Here it says, the light of the body is the eye. If thy eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of the light. The way we get full of the light is to seek Christ. Right? In John 1 and 1 John, John opens both these books talking about Christ being the light, the light dispelling the darkness. In him is light, you know, and there's no darkness at all. Our eyes need to search and fill our conscience with the things of Christ, looking in his word, looking for evidences of him around us, and seeking him in prayer. So 22, pretty straightforward, right? Our eyes should be about seeking light about looking and searching for evidences of God in his word and the world around us. Now, verse 23 takes a little bit more unpacking. It talks about the eye, if it's evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. And then the kind of quizzical phrase, if therefore the light that is in thee is darkness, how great is the darkness? So that takes maybe a little bit of unpacking. But essentially it's saying an unhealthy eye. Some versions say a bad eye. Some say a double eye. Think about cross-eyed or blurry-eyed. Um, but that unhealthy eye will seek out darkness. That's what it wants to find. That's what it's looking for. And it will bring that in instead of light. And then in essence, this whole idea of the light that's in you being darkness and the darkness is great is that eye only takes in darkness. It stains the conscience. And the conscience becomes dark. And there's no light left. There's just darkness inside. You know, it makes sense when you think physically how we operate, right? What we take in and what our eyes see and where our eyes go. For instance, I've got no idea what's on the wall behind me. You guys know. Your eyes are pointing that way. So you could probably tell me what's for lunch on Monday if you had really good eyesight. You know, I've got a pretty good idea what's going on with the balloon scene in back of you all. But right, we only see a portion, what we direct our eyes at. We don't see everything that's around us. We can point our eyes in a direction and see so we have some control over what's coming in to ourselves. The other thing is where our eyes are pointing are where we typically go. One of the first things my dad taught me when I was learning to drive at night is don't look at the headlights of the oncoming car because you will steer into them. Before you know it, you're in their lane. Where you look is at the uh, strip of the road down to the right. Because you go where your eyes go. So we naturally will go where our eyes go. So our eyes are something that need to protect our conscience. And there's this thing that happens here in these verses that Christ is talking about here. If our eyes are looking at light, it lights our conscience. And our conscience tells our eyes, go find more light. Right? Go look at more light. But on the other hand, if our eyes start taking in darkness... Right? And our conscience says, oh, I like that. Or something inside us says, I like that. It then directs our eyes to look at more darkness. So there's a, there's a loop built in here. So we need to be very careful. I mean, you children probably heard this from your parents, right? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. I think there's a song that goes with it, if I remember right. But it's important. Be careful, big eyes, what you see. Be careful, all our eyes, what we see. Because we can direct them. We can turn our head. We can go any way we want. That billboard, we don't have to look at it. 
right? It doesn't have to exist. We can look straight down the road, which is where we're supposed to be driving anyway. Because the warning here is once you've seen something, folks, you can't unsee it. Right? Once it comes in through the windows, you can't unsee it. Right? It stays with you. The good news is, if you're looking at good things, they don't leave you. They stay. Bad news is, if that television or media or the book you're reading or the movie or the video game or whatever it might be is assaulting is darkness, it comes on in and you can't unsee it. So we do need to be careful of what our eyes see and where they point. You cannot be, though, doing these things in our own strength. Right? God, Christ, cannot be our treasure and our light without salvation. The Holy Spirit must be indwelling our lives to even cause us right, to desire to treasure the Lord. Or cause us to desire to take in light. To do it in any other way, we end up where the religious leaders that we've been speaking about are here. All an outward show that eventually gets seen through. So this is sermon, as I think many of them have been in this series, is not about doing. Right? About just saying, okay, I'm going to take my eyes and make them do this or that. Because without God's support... Without the indwelling spirit, we won't get there. So that's my encouragement to one that might be sitting this morning and says, I don't know if that indwelling Holy Spirit's inside me. I've been trying to control my eyes. I've been trying to treasure the things of God, and I just keep falling back in. My encouragement to you is to seek the Lord and salvation, not feel like the religious leaders of the time. To rely on the Lord Jesus Christ as your only source of righteousness. To have him, the indwelling spirit, be Lord of your life, guiding and directing your thoughts and your actions. Because without that, the rest of this doesn't make any sense at all. For the believers who are gathered here, what's been coming through our eyes? Are we controlling that eye gate? What affections are our eyes feeding and what affections are controlling our eyes? What's that loop look like? And is our conscience getting lighter from what our eyes are looking at or is it getting darker from what our eyes are looking at? The third section, the third question posed to us in the scripture this morning is who or what is my master? We see that in verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. The word for master here is the exclusive owner. So the word necessarily makes the definition for us. This is a mutually exclusive situation. There are only two options. There's not multiple masters. We can't serve multiple masters because of the way the wording is set up here. In fact, when you look, it says you cannot serve two masters, right? It doesn't say you should not or you should consider not or do not serve two masters. It says we can't 
it's impossible to actually serve two masters. And there's two options here. At the end, it said you cannot serve God and mammon. Many um, versions, and some of the ways this verse commonly gets paraphrased, is you can't serve God in money. Can't serve God in money. You hear that all the time. That's true, but that's a little narrower than the rendering of the language here. I mean, mammon is actually a better translation here because it broadens the scope. It means riches, money, possession, or whatever I trust in, whatever I place my trust and my security in. So mammon brings a little broader idea of the idea here. They could be those worldly things that pull us away from God until they're all our eyes focus on. They could be the treasures that pull us away from God until they're all our eyes focus on, then they own us. They master us. They are our master at that point. What I submit to us this morning is God has the clear right to ownership. He has an undisputed title to the life of every human being. Why? Because he created every one of us. He has the right to ownership of every human being walking the face of the earth because he created everyone. And greater yet for the believers, his ownership comes because he's bought us with a price. The life of his son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is a tough one. Who is our master? And our treasure and our eyes lead us to who's going to be the master. There was a time, probably about 18 years or so ago, that my career, pursuit of business, gaining wealth and status, were my masters. That was my treasure. That's what my eye was set on. I took a job here in Indianapolis. That's what brought us here. Because I wanted the next job. I wanted the next position. I wanted the promotion. This job was just a stepping stone onto something bigger, something else. And that year, I dedicated myself to pursuing that treasure. I went after it with everything I had. And in the end, I was gone home from my home for 16 weeks of that year. And all of us, my wife and children including, were paying the price for my treasure. But God convicted. And I allowed him then to be the master of that area of my life. And that's when he showed me the verse I shared with you earlier. Let's turn there again. Proverbs 30. Let's look at that one more time. Proverbs 30. Verses 7 through 9. Two things have I required of thee. Deny me them not before I die. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food convenient for me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my Lord in vain. Church, I hold on to that verse today to keep from slipping back into old ways and pursuing old treasures.
And you know that next year, after serving God first, I was named Technical Service Engineer of the Year. The year after, right? The year I put God first and made him my treasure. And then 16 years later, guess what? I've got the job I was pursuing. God gave it to me. I wasn't even looking for it. Phone rings. Would you like to do this? Sure, I'd love to do that. How much better this all was in his timing and with him as master of the situation. Let's look at one last reference together. Turn to me with Psalms. If you're in state in Proverbs, you're still pretty close. Psalms 123. And then we are going to look at Psalm 123. I think this gives us a great summary about the relationship between a servant and a master and really clearly shows how we can only have one master. Psalm 123. Unto thee I lift up mine eyes, O thou that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of the servant look to the hand of the master and the eyes of the maiden to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord, our God, until that he have mercy upon us. We could only watch one master at a time. And that was the servant's responsibility, is to watch the master's hand. Because from that hand came a direction to go or to come. Or from that hand came the payment or the care that the servant needed. So the servant, a good servant, focuses on the eye of the one master that that servant is looking to serve. And how wonderful that if we choose to look at the hand of God, he has mercy upon us. Our master has mercy upon us. So which master are we watching intently? Whose hand? There's only one. We can serve the things of the world or we can serve the hand of God. Which are we a slave to serving? So as we conclude in the end, we see Christ is just continuing a line of teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. This set of verses gets to the hard attitude to have towards the world around us, towards its goods and its ways. But it's still about the heart. It's still about inner attitudes and motivations and how we live our lives genuinely, right? From a heart that aligns with Scripture and is led by the Spirit, than by how the religious leaders were in an external show. So church, what you treasure affects your heart. What you view lights your body. And both reveal your master. There is tremendous good news here before we close though. Because we are invited to serve the best master. (laughs) Right? He's our creator but he is also the most capable, the most generous, the most loving, the most merciful master there can be. And we're invited to be his servants. Under his care, then, we can be free from any want, from any worry, and have an indescribable 
eternal, lasting treasure. If the promises of God are my treasure, if they're what I dwell on, if they're what I stake my future on, and if I fix my eyes on the things of light, then he is my master. And even better yet, he's our friend. John 15, 15 tells us, Christ speaking to his disciples, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant does not know what his Lord does. But I have called you friends. For all things I have heard of my Father, I've made known unto you. So again, church, these are familiar verses. But do they affect the way we think and the way we live? And just because they're familiar doesn't mean they're impacting us. Do we just hear them and obey? You know, there are choices set before us. What, I, what we treasure, what's our light, who's our master. Can we declare like Joshua in another very familiar verse that you have made your choice? Yes, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because there is great reward when we do. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the light that it brings. We thank you for the treasure that it is. And Father, we thank you for the master that you are. Father, if there's one here that can't claim you as master, who has not made that surrender of their will to you, Oh, Father, may they do that today and know the great treasure in the great light and the loving master that awaits them and the sure promises of God. And, Father, for those who are your children, may we treasure your word. May we treasure your promises. May they be the light of our life. And may we fix our hands Excuse me, may we fix our eyes on the loving hand of our master. And I pray this in Jesus' name.